Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 794 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade, persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in the vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of God. Whenever I hear this text, I'm brought back to a time when I was 16 and 17 years old, believe it or not. That was a while ago. You see, I was 16 years old when I first began to sense that maybe God was calling me to the ministry. I was very young, but I'd already come to realize a few things that were important. The first was that although I was very active in sports and music and other things at our, our, our school, my faith had become really central to my life and important to me. We had an active youth group in our church, and I loved being a part of it. A lot of great people were in it, and I felt very encouraged by being involved with it. For as long as I could remember, I had a deep love for the Scriptures. I, I loved to read it, to think about it, and to talk to other people about what I was learning. That was something that I had discovered I enjoyed doing, and others, seem, others seemed to appreciate my involvement with that. And I'd already had the, the privilege of introducing several of my friends to faith in Jesus Christ, and I had seen the positive change that the gospel had made uh, in, in the lives of other people. And I began to wonder if maybe God wanted me to devote my life to the, 
to the study of the Scriptures and the sharing of the good news of the gospel. It was a very difficult decision um, because uh, I thought you weren't supposed to want to go into ministry, that you're supposed to dislike it and then ultimately agree to it. But this was something that I kind of wanted to do, and uh, uh, it was difficult because there was a part of me that wanted to join uh, my father in his growing architecture business and be a part of that. And, and I had already seen some older teenage friends of mine flame out in their faith after they told everybody else that they wanted to go in the ministry too. So I was, I was kind of nervous about this, and I didn't want to be presumptuous. I knew there were three people I needed to talk to about this before I made a final decision. The first was my girlfriend, Donna. Yes, <laughs> we've been together since we were 16 years old, and we'd only been going together a few months at that time. How would she respond if she knew that the guy she'd been, you know, get going out with was thinking of going to ministry? Um, we we're already very close to one another, but what would happen? And I, I can still remember the look on her face when she said, where are you, dear? She said, yeah. Sorry. It's a, you know, my mom always believed that, I'd married a, that I would marry a minister. Yeah. The second was my father. I remember driving our family van home from church camp that summer. My dad was in the passenger side. It was late at night, and the rest of the family was sleeping in the back. I was driving with my, you know, 16-year-old license the way that you do, and, and I knew it was time for me to open up this can of worms with my dad on a four-hour, five-hour drive. plenty of time for that. And I screwed up my courage, and I said, Dad, what would you say if I... I didn't expect all this to happen, though I'm thinking about it, but what would you say if I told you that I thought maybe God was calling me into the ministry? You know, I'm driving. He paused a moment, and he said, I'd say that would be a real answer to prayer. We had a long conversation on that way home, and I still treasure the books that he helped me to buy to begin my brand-new ministerial library, which, as you can tell if you've been to my house, has grown to be quite large. But the four books we bought still hold a prominent place, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, <laughs> for example. Uh, and the third person I needed to talk to was my pastor, Pastor Price. His son, Doug, is a good friend of mine and came to visit just a week or so ago. Some of you saw him. He was here on my birthday. And uh, he was a towering figure in my life during those times. He was straight-laced, always wore a suit, no matter, even at the beach, I think, and, uh, and had a very unfashionable 1976 crew cut, you know. And I made an appointment with him and sat down and shared my heart with him that summer. Uh, he, too, was encouraging and told me not to worry about those who had flamed out before me, that he was confident that I was right and sensing that God was calling me to the ministry. He began to set the wheels in motion so that I could be formally licensed by my local congregation as a local conference minister, the first step of what then became kind of a 10-year process toward my own formal ordination. And so it was that just after my 17th birthday, nearing the end of my senior year of high school, uh, my senior year of high school, I preached my very first sermon in church on a Sunday night in January. Maybe it was February. It was called The Blessings of Bible Study. And it was based on Psalm 119. I still like that sermon. Someday I'll preach it to you, maybe. Not long after that, the bishop of our denomination held a congregational meeting, and I received my first ministerial license. And somewhere I have a picture of a very old bishop 
and a very young Steve in a formal handshake as he delivered to me that license. I thought about that this week, and I realized that that was 38 years ago. I did a little internet research, and I discovered that that very old bishop was actually younger than I am today when he gave me that license. That was a, not a very pleasant experience. On that same evening, as we had that meeting the church family together, a retired minister in our congregation kind of cornered me and wanted to chat with me just a little bit. And as best I recall, this is what he said to me. He said this, Steve, I want to tell you something that's very important. Never forget this. Preach the Word. Whatever else you do, preach the Word. He said, when the Apostle Paul came into Corinth, he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul preached this way because of a vision, he said to me, that he had received when he entered Corinth. The Lord came to him at night and said, Do not be afraid, Paul, but keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you in order to harm you. Preach the word, Steve, he said. Do that, and everything else will fall into place. I've never forgotten that conversation or his advice. It's been a guiding principle in my life ever since. You see, his words resonated with the example I'd already received from my pastor and my father, both of whom were men who loved the Word of God. I think of my conversation with that retired minister every time I read Acts 18, the passage which Janice just read for you, because this retired minister was referring to that particular story in the Bible in the 18th chapter when the apostle Paul was there and needed some special encouragement from the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Yes, every time I come, come to that text, I can't help but remember that conversation, and now, of course, I see it from 30-some years of memory of being grateful for that challenge, the beginning of ministry. Yeah, if you're new among us, we've been studying the book of Acts together for quite some time. It tells the fascinating story of how the gospel spread from a small band of followers in Jerusalem to a mighty force which literally changed the world in the first century. Now we find the Apostle Paul in the burgeoning seaside city of Corinth, a city like many seaports known for its wealth, for being cosmopolitan, for being multicultural, and for being filled with sensual delights. In fact, to Corinthianize was a well-known phrase of that time, a euphemism for sexual deviancy. Paul had just started a church in that town, and it looks as we read it as though things were going really quite well. You know, so far he hadn't been kicked out of town, he hadn't been stoned by a mob, he hadn't been thrown into jail, everything seemed to be going pretty well. But there in the ninth and 10th verses, we see that Paul was apparently in a surprisingly discouraged state. Maybe he was just tired, just worn out. Um, because we read that one night, the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, do not be afraid. Paul, who was so fearless in every other situation, seemed to have been overcome by fears right here and right now. I've always been encouraged by this episode in Paul's life. 
I often think of him as a fearless, courageous, and a man ready to face any obstacle. But in this instance, Paul is afraid. He's apparently thinking of leaving Corinth and going somewhere new, of, a, of abandoning ships, so to speak, in that, in that place. You know, like the infamous Patriot footballs, Paul's vision is deflating. <laughs> He's having his very own deflate gate. You ever had deflate, deflate gate in your life? You get discouraged. It just looks too hard. It seems as though it's not getting any better. Your vision is sagging. Yeah. So the Lord appears to him that night and gives him a fresh vision, a fresh infusion of vision, inflates his vision, so to speak, and gives to him this assurance. Don't quit, Paul. Don't be afraid. I've got great plans for you in this city. If you leave now, you'll miss what's going on for you in the future, and people who will be touched by your life will not have that opportunity. Don't quit. And so the Bible tells us that this clearly worked because right after it, in the 11th verse, it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. This was the longest Paul had stayed in any church once he'd begun his missionary journeys. His home church in Antioch, he'd been there longer, but ever since these last several years while he's been traveling, he just stayed a short time. But now he stayed there 18 months other than the church at Ephesus, which later he planted, it's the place he stayed the longest. And we have two letters, long letters in the New Testament, written to this church, which was a problem church for Paul as he wrote to them. But he loved those people, and he felt like a parent towards his children, toward those people. What was it that the Lord said to him? What was it that moved Paul from fear to faith? What was it that turned him from running away to, to staying put? I think there are three things that Paul discovered in that vision that helped him stay the course, continue to work that God had called him to do. We'll take a look at those three things in the time we have remaining. As we do this, I'd like you to think about these three things in the context of your own life. Where in your life are you facing fear? Where in your life are you feeling discouragement? Where in your life has your vision grown deflated? Where in your life have you been wondering if it's really worth it? Where in your life have you been thinking about quitting? I wonder, is it possible, and I think it is, that the vision that the Lord gave to Paul is a vision that God wants to reignite in your life today, perhaps? What was it that moved Paul from fear to faith, from shutting up to speaking truth? Three things that the Lord promised him. You can jot them down in your notes today. God's presence, God's protection. And God's promise. So first of all, when you feel like quitting, when your vision has gone down, rely on God's personal presence. Rely on God's personal presence. I am with you, the Lord said. I am with you. Paul, I know you're discouraged, he seems to say. I know you wonder if it's really worth it, but don't forget this, Paul. We're in this together. You're not alone. In the midst of your doubts, your discouragements, I am here with you. Oh, this is such a wonderful promise. I mean, think about it. Imagine you're facing a difficult challenge, and the Lord is right 
there with you. It's good to have someone with you you trust. And the Lord promised Paul, and he promises to us that he is with us. This promise of God's presence is something rich in Paul's religious tradition. No doubt when he heard those words, he, he thought about ancient scriptures which, with, with which he had lived his life. He may have thought about the promise that God made to Isaac in Genesis 26 when the Lord said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abram's, Abraham's sake. Or a few chapters later to Jacob, as he's fleeing from his brother Esau, the Lord promised that he was with him. In Isaiah the prophet, when God promised his exiled people that he had not abandoned them, he said to them, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Isaiah 41, 9 and 10. This promise that came to a discouraged people who'd lost their land and their country, this promise that said, I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. The apostle Paul had to remember that. But mostly, I'm sure, Paul thought about two Bible characters who received this same promise in his Old Testament, in his Hebrew Scriptures. Their names were Joshua and Jeremiah. You see, Joshua had a parallel experience to, to Paul. Joshua was in the midst of trying to take people into the promised land to lead them into enemy territory and claim it for God's glory. He was a brand new leader, and the Lord came to him in Joshua 1, 5, and 6 and said, No man will be with, able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. And then also a little later in history, Jeremiah the prophet had received the call of God when he was a very young man in Genesis, Jeremiah 1, 7 and 8. And God had called him to speak the word of God to his people, and yet Jeremiah knew from the beginning that his word would be rejected, that his message would be rejected, just as Paul's message to his own countrymen was primarily rejected. But it says in Jeremiah 1, 7 and 8, the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you will go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. The apostle Paul no doubt found himself in the footsteps of these great men of his religious tradition, and he thought, you know, God promised to Jeremiah, and he promised to Joshua that he'd be with him. He'll be with me. I claim that. And to you, too, today, you stand in that tradition, even as we see it here in the book of Acts, where God says, I will be with you. If you're feeling all alone, tell yourself, I am not alone. God is with me. The Lord is with me. We may feel alone, but we are not. We've got the Lord with us. I think about the fellowship of the ring of these seven men, the dwarves and the, and the uh, hobbits and the elves, and yet there was one guy who was with them, Gandalf the Grey. And they had confidence moving towards the land of Mordor. Why? Because Gandalf was leading them. Yeah. Do you remember that story? Some of you do, right? You can have confidence as you face your future. The Lord is with you.
How would your perspective change if you really believed God was with you in the midst of your difficulty? Yeah, I'm sure it would change. You know, in Matthew 28, Jesus, after his resurrection, came to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, it may feel as though God is distant, but it's never true. God is with you. You can say, along with the psalmist, Thou art with me. They, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. When you feel like quitting, rely on God's promised presence. Claim it. Live as though it's true. Believe it's there for you. That's the first thing that the Apostle Paul realized. Secondly, when you feel like quitting, rely on God's protective power. Rely on God's protective power. He says next, no one will attack you in order to harm you. No one will attack you to harm you. What does this mean? It's, it's sort of a strange thing. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he seemed fearless, right? He didn't mind. I mean, we've already read a story where he got stoned and left out for dead, and instead of running away, what does he do? But walk right back into the city. He seems fearless, but somehow today he, had, he was fearful. You know, you, sometimes you can be strong, and other times you are weak. Yeah. Now, is God promising to him that his life will be free from all physical harm and danger? No. We see he's in danger in the very next paragraph. He's brought before the Roman court on the charge that this new sect is an illegal religion. It's a very important pro, uh, uh, thing that happens in verses 12 to 17 because if, if they had been determined to be an illegal religion, they would have been against the Roman Empire. But Gallio said, now this is one of your sects. And that provided for the Christian church during the, over, over, during the next 10 years the protection of the Roman Empire until Nero came into power some 10 years later and then he had his own way of going about it. But those 10 years were valuable and they were agreed to there when Gallio, the proconsul, said, no, this is a, this is a, a sect within Judaism. Yes, but he did face the, the, uh, um, he, the, the court there in Rome. So he, he was in danger the angry Jews took him before the Roman court and accused him of practicing an illegal religion. What was it that God promised him? God promised him this. No matter what happens, God seems to say, God, I will accomplish my purpose through you. No human being, no hardship, nothing will hinder my plan for you, Paul. No man will attack you in order to harm you. These people are not going to stop what I want to do in and through your life. No one will attack you in order to harm you. You know, often we face obstacles in our lives. For Paul, it was generally people who didn't like what he was saying and what he was doing, what he was teaching. They wanted to stop him, to harm him, even to kill him. But God said, don't worry. No one will stop me from accomplishing my work in your life. And we see later in this story that God had promised to Paul that he would give witness for him in Rome. Remember, Paul says later, I've been called to go to Rome. But how did Paul get to Rome? He got to Rome because he was captured as a prisoner, and he went to Rome uh, as a prisoner on an all-expenses-paid trip to the emperor. He faced hardship 
But that hardship itself was part of God's plan for him. I'm getting smoke in my eyes. So, um, you know, like Joseph and his brothers in that ancient biblical story, others meant to do Paul harm, but God brought good out of it. Or as Paul himself once wrote in a letter to the Romans, all things work together for good to them who love God and who are called according to his purpose. You know, sometimes we go through difficult times, but difficult times do not stop God's ability to work in our lives. We've seen this in some amazing ways just in the last couple of months. There are two men, both of whom hear my voice today, who experienced potentially deadly accidents in the past several months. And in both cases, where you talk to them, they will tell you surprisingly that in some ways, their accident almost saved their life. Because of the medical attention that they received and how that, that accident gave the medical people an opportunity to correct some problems that they would not have known about had not that accident occurred. Yeah. The enemy meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. Yes. In our own church family, we see that sometimes things which look like they're terrible can actually, there can be some good things come out of them. No doubt you're facing some serious and difficult obstacles, but God's promise to Paul is available for you too. Others may mean you harm, but God can bring good from it. The odds may be stacked against you, but God is not limited by the odds. You may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but you need fear no evil. For the good shepherd is with you. His rod and his staff will protect you. You can rely on God's protection no matter what obstacles you face. God can bring good from it. And the apostle Paul even said this, if God is for us, who can be against us? So when you feel like quitting, remember God's presence and God's protection that he will accomplish his purposes through you. And the third thing, when you feel like quitting, rely on God's promised future. God's promised future. Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking and do not be silent, for I have many people in this city. Now, that's an interesting statement. Did he have people in that city today? No. But God knew the future. God knew that if if, if Paul stayed the course and continued to work, there were people that would respond to him. God saw the future. There were people. Paul just didn't see it yet. All Paul could see, apparently, were problems. God could see the future. He said to him, don't quit, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not give up. There is a future here that you cannot see. I have people in this city. We need to realize we don't even see the next hour. I mean, you think you do. You know, as I shared earlier, you know, we had, you know, someone just this week who was enjoying golf on Thursday and had surgery on Friday, unexpected. We don't know tomorrow, but we know someone who knows tomorrow, right? Yeah. I have many people in this city, he said. Paul, don't quit. Don't give up. And so for you, whatever you might face, remember, God has a future that he will bring to you if you just remain faithful 
and refuse to quit and allow him to fill up the vision in your life. God has a promised future. He promises protection and his presence in the midst of that. Yeah. You know, we've seen that even here in our own church family. I mentioned that this is a significant text to me, and in fact, in the first two churches where I was the senior pastor, the first sermon I preached in both of those churches was out of this text. And I came in those cases to churches that were discouraged and facing some difficult times, and I says, let's not be afraid. Yeah, why? God is with us. God will protect us. God will bring us to something great. Yeah. And I didn't preach on that till today as I'm here, but think about how the last couple of years have gone for us as a church. I remember those days about three years ago when uh, I was talking to just a few of you about uh, this possibility of a new church, and, you know, it was frightening a little bit, and yet I have been so convinced of God's presence, God's protection, and God's blessing that it seemed to me we had no opportunity but to move forward despite the fact we had no money, no backing. We had eight, eight of us together, and, and, but we had the conviction that God had people in this city. And so, you know, we met for a whole summer inside that ship, eight or ten of us. Remember, Brian? Twelve. On a good day, fourteen. Remember, Steve? Yeah. There were some times when I got up on Sunday, and Donna, I hate to say this on her, but she'd say, you know, do you really have to preach today? <laughs> Nobody's going to be there, you know. But God had a plan for a church and a saloon in Cave Creek. Yeah, yeah. You are living proof of the truth of this promise. Now, go out from here and live it in your own life. Remember, God has promised to be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. God has promised to protect you. He can bring good even out of the bad situations you face. And God sees a future you cannot yet see. You know, I can't help but think of the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter which says this in the first couple of verses. Seeing then we are encompassed by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's speaking about the people of faith who've gone on before him, that 11th chapter of Hebrews. Seeing then we are encompassed about by a great cloud of witnesses, and the image there is of a runner in a race with all the people cheering in the stand, such as you will experience this afternoon, as you watch it on television, but this was a running race. Seeing then you are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking unto who? Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set at the right hand of the Father. 
I forget the next verse, but it's good too. <laughs> Jesus, finish the race. We had a promise of God's presence. Why? Because Jesus was on a cross and felt God's abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have the promise of God's protection because Jesus went to death to defeat all the enemies that could be brought up against us. We have the promise of God's perfect future for us because not even death could hold him in the grave, but he was raised from the dead. Let us not give up. Let us not lose hope. Let us run with patience. The race marked out for us. We don't set the course. It gets marked out for us. Looking unto Jesus, who endured the cross and despised its shame and is set at the right hand of the Father. Now, if we were a baseball team, I'd say, let's all huddle up. One, two, three, Falcons! Or whatever we used to say. That's not what you say anymore, I don't think. You do? All right. Let's go. I don't know what race you have to run this week, but I do know God will be with you. God will protect you. And God will bring a good result at the end of it. You ready to run? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words of encouragement. Thank you for reminding us that though the race is hard, there's one who ran it first. And that we can know of your presence because you are willing to experience God's abandonment. That we can know good from evil because there was one who faced evil and defeated it and brought about a blessed future. Father, thank you for the mystery of how you work in our lives. I pray that each one of us here today would embrace you, would commit our lives to you, to the one who gave his life for us. In Jesus' name I pray.